I apologize because we had some technical difficulties during the first part of this recording. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Social Discourse. I'm Eli. I'm Em. I'm Preston. And I'm Simon. Uh, today's topic is how should contemporary societies approach transgenderism? Simon, you chose our topic. Why did you choose this? Okay. Um, I chose it out of confusion. One, it's a little echoey, uh, noting. Uh, but I chose it out of confusion because I was setting up an event. That's my job here. Uh, and I was setting up an event, and it was on transgender speech therapy. I thought, great. That's great. Transitioning must be very hard, and you want to find the right voice to match yourself. But the the, the gentleman who was presenting was a doctor uh, at a reputable hospital nearby, and this doctor was also Orthodox Jewish, which I uh, maybe not Orthodox. So he, he was wearing, he was wearing a yarmulke, so he was Jewish. Uh, but he he gave half the presentation, and it was it was stressing the importance of acceptance of transgender patients in hospitals. And the whole time I was thinking, I was like, doesn't wouldn't this clash with the Jewish religion? Wouldn't this clash with his conservative beliefs? He didn't appear to have any, and I'm not sure if there's anything in the Jewish religion that that says that he can't be transgender. But you, it's something you expect, you know. Perhaps it's a stereotype fault. And so I chose this, this question to learn more about um, this this new, not necessarily new, but like uh, new force in society that has become transgenderism. All right. Um, M has some history. Um, So there's lots of history, so be prepared for that. Um, So first off, transgender is an umbrella term that describes people whose gender identity does not match their sex assigned at birth. This includes people on the non-binary scale and not just people who go from female to male and male to female. Um, The term transsexual, however, was coined in 1923 by a German doctor. Um, these two terms are not synonymous, though. Transsexual may be used by people who wish to have or have pursued medical interventions. Um, in general, it is just a personal preference on this scale, though. Um, we will primarily probably use the term trans, which can refer to both or either communities. Uh, history is abundant with transgender individuals. Um, A few, namely to mention, are the Indian Hiraj. They have been recorded for over 4,000 years. Um, The Israeli Sarism, or Enix, which have biblical references. Um, And then a specific person would be the Roman Emperor Elagabalus, who ruled, who, who lived from 2004 to, not 2004, 204 to 222 uh, BC, I believe. Um, So, therapy uh, began as hormone therapy in 1949 by Dr. Harry Benjamin, advocated for hormone therapy and gender reassignment surgery 
because he believed that um, they would be more effective than psychotherapy. Um, in more recent days, we've seen a rise in the civil rights movement specifically for transgender individuals. In 1959, trans woman Christine Jorgensen was denied a marriage license based on her assigned gender at birth. The publicity resulted in her husband being fired. Um, in 1969, the Stonewall Riots, um, which are credited with sparking the modern gay rights movement, um, which was led by a group of trans women. Uh, in 1976, a uh, New Jersey Supreme Court case entitled MT versus JT ruled that a transsexual person may marry on the basis of their identity. In 1993, we have the Minnesota Human Rights Act, which banned employment discrimination on the basis of identity. Also in 1993, trans man Brandon Tina is raped and murdered, which prompted a national movement to incorporate anti-transgender hate crimes into future hate crime legislation. Uh, in 2009, Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act was set in place which allows federal investigation of uh, bias-motivated crimes based on gender identity when the local law enforcement fails. Um, also in 2009, an executive order banning gender identity discrimination in the executive branch in employment decisions was put in place. Um, just to mention a few of the steps back that we've taken, um, in 1999, in a Texas Fourth Court of Appeals case entitled Littleton versus Prange, um, they rejected MT versus JT in a medical malpractice lawsuit in which they refused to recognize Littleton's marriage as legitimate. Uh, Littleton was transgender. Uh, 2001, Jane Noel Gardner's uh, inheritance case in the Kansas Supreme Court refused to allow this, the trans woman, Janel Gardner, to inherit her husband's property since they viewed her marriage as invalid. Uh, in 2007, uh, the Employment Discrimination Act stripped, uh, was stripped of trans protection. This was restored in 2009, though. Um, when we focus on transgender uh, mm, uh, treatments, specifically medical, and surgical therapies. These are often termed as gender-affirming therapies and involve hormones, hormone blockers, and surgical techniques. This should not be mistaken though, as they also require the regular doctor, dentist, and therap therapist visits of everyone else. Gender-affirming hormone therapy is usually the first step of transitioning medically. What is the role of gender identity in a contemporary society? I think Gender identity hasn't taken a new shape, necessarily. Um, we've always had this idea that your gender identity uh, affirms whether or not uh, you get to do specific things, but we see everyone doing everything. And so I don't think that any specific kind of gender, gender identity has taken on a new role but rather I think we've just generalized the roles of gender identity 
so women can be CEOs and men can be stay-at-home dads. Um, and everybody in between can do all of those jobs too. I think when it comes to gender identity, it's kind of, it's always contextual on the society that you live in. And since we're talking about the United States, I think the role of gender identity is kind of to set a guideline. It's kind of to set a guideline of what a person um, ought to be determined by the society in terms of how a person sees themselves and views themselves. It kind of gives a guideline and kind of a, a roadmap of where a person wants to go. If It's kind of like attributing a the identity and the label to oneself but you can still do other things that are outside of that roadmap but it gives you kind of a it's always a guideline a lot of people like having organization in their lives and having that identity helps them figure out what they want to do you see i would um i disagree actually preston um yeah traditionally gender identity has been the shaping form if you were a woman you picked berries in the ancient time and men went out and hunt, went out and hunt um and even in more modern times you've seen women be dressy and you know they do that sort of thing um but i don't think that that's actually what our gender identity has come to recognize anymore um certainly our gender identity still forms a basis for how we think we should draft act, dress, speak, and look, certainly, um, but I don't think it's actually a, I don't think it actually forms a basis of what we should do in our life anymore, um, and I think in that format, um, when we take into account uh, the rise in uh, people coming out as non-binary and somewhere between male and female, but not as either one, um, I think we have this kind of gray zone where that traditional application of gender identity isn't as applicable. Um, to that, I have to ask, how many people are coming to uh, ex uh, come out as non-binary or the opposite uh, assigned sex to a different gender than what their sex is? Um, I have... An I'm not quite sure on the specific number that it said, but I know that uh, it's somewhere in the hundred thousands. One of the articles I read this week reported. Okay. In the U.S. alone. Uh, just if it is in the hundred thousands, that's less than one percent population, which is interesting. Uh, the United States has always wanted to protect the ideals of a minority, um, but to what extent of a minority is a good question. Uh, I, I guess a follow-up question on what the role of gender is, is uh, and you're saying that there really isn't one. Uh, so would you agree that, that gender roles are dead or should be? Um, I didn't say that I think that gender doesn't have a role. I just don't think that gender's role is to assign us what we're going to do in life as we traditionally usually have it. But I do think that the traditional idea of gender roles is probably dead. Is I tr this traditional idea that because you're a woman, you're going to have children and you're going to raise children, and because you're a man, you're going to do work, is dead. Can gender roles, I have to ask this question, can gender roles adapt and change? Yeah. Um, specifically, um, in my Anthropology 103 class, we talked about um, how women and men 
use language differently. And uh, when we talked about this, we talked about gender identity and how gender is a social construct. When we get to, into different societies, people view it differently. Um, for instance, in Indian cultures, it's not uncommon for men to be wearing things that in American, in the American culture, we would assume is feminine. Um, a lot of Indian men we also look at as effeminate. Um, we do this same sort of stereotyping in the Chinese culture and in the Russian culture. Um, we view Russian women as very masculine. And so it, it does change through societies. And I do think that because of that, when society changes, gender identity changes. So then, uh, as you're saying, I, like, well, I want to clarify, you're saying that gender roles can change over time, like the certain aspects of a gender role can change over time, correct? Yeah. Okay, then how is gender how is gender roles, how are they dead if within American society, the specific aspects of a traditional woman uh, being at home changed to that a woman can also work in the workplace now and can be her own independent person? I'm, I'm not sure I understood your question. Can you rephrase it in a different way? Um, when it comes to gender roles, you're agreeing that gender roles and aspects of traditional gender roles can change over time. So how is the gender, how are gender roles dead in America or the specific uh, gender roles where a person can, is led to believe that they have to do these certain actions? How are they dead in America if within America those ideals or those certain aspects of gender roles have changed? Um, so um, specifically I said that our traditional gender roles, so the ones that you, uh, the U.S. was founded upon, like founded with, um, are dead. Um, but I would say that gender has become less important. Um, it's not important to me whether or not my instructor is a man or a female. Um, or anywhere in between. Like that doesn't matter anymore where it used to. It doesn't matter to me whether my boss is a man or a woman. Uh, and I think that's where gender has become less important and I, I think doesn't even necessarily matter. Okay. But should it matter? I don't think it should. Preston, matter? Um, with that, I would say within an American society, I'm going to take on the role of good old John Stuart Mill and classical liberalism and say, take on life experiences, do what's good for the general happiness of all, and keep on trying out these new gender roles or these new um, ideas that gender doesn't matter in a form or a... Uh, professional environment and if it contributes to the general happiness of all of the society that we live in then yeah it's fine it doesn't matter um, I have a correction I looked at the numbers and there's actually one million adults uh, who identify as transgender in the United States my bad my misreading I fixed it what percentage is that do the math <laughs> oh, do, yeah I got my calculator actually <laughs> Point uh, zero zero two is how many percentages? It's like two percent. Yeah, 2%. it's it's still less than. Less than one percent. Yeah. It's one fifth of one percent. Oof. Solid. But that's still how many people? You said a 
a million? million? Yeah. I mean, that's a million people, so it's still significant. <laughs> How should the medical community incorporate transgender patients into healthcare treatment? Um, I'm not a doctor. Oh, can I give some context? Yes. Um, one thing that this doctor brought up was the, the, the paramount necessity of having all your different identification available to the doctor, like your birth certificate, your driver's license, your ID card, cause, because your, your gender identity might be different on all three. For some for some reason, or like they're outdated or something like that, and so it's very important that they have all of that into account in order for them to make a um, accurate diagnosis. Um, and for insurance. So, with all of that, like you said, like some things might be outdated, and I know that changing your gender on your birth certificate is a lot harder than changing your gender on your driver's license. So, with that being said, like, the medical community, it should just be, like, plain and straight out said that, um, like, on any sort of forms that they have to fill out, just going into some random clinic for a checkup, it should be on all sort of forms that are filled out, like, what is your gender identity, what is your uh, birth sex, just because, like, the way that things are worded on like patient forms and everything people just say this just says sex but my gender is or i have medically transitioned into a different gender it's complicated to get all of this information without being able to actually write down all of the information so like i think the forms should just more be like open and more informative for the doctor so that there's no guess and check for the patient or the doctor. Ah, and I think with that, uh, having those two forms of identification on, written on a paper, allowing uh, the birth sex to be said and the transitioned or uh, gender identity specifically, allow would actually in- give and uh, include more individuals within the healthcare uh, business when it comes to getting health care and it would also allow doctors to make more medically uh, informed decisions because every individual is a case-by-case basis and with that I would say that the medical community should start trying out these processes to see whether or not doctors do get or have more medically informed decisions because this process hasn't been um, entirely tested out thoroughly within a society. Um, additionally, and I know this is semi-discriminatory because of, um, the way that this is going to sound, but, uh, people who practice healthcare, so physicians, nurses, people like that, shouldn't be allowed to say, I don't want to treat this person because of this. Um, particularly, I bring this up because, uh, there are not a lot of doctors who are willing to uh, go through this idea of gender-affirming medical medicine and surgeries. Um, and it can be really difficult to find a doctor who's willing to work with people who want to go about that route. Um, 
So I don't think that's discriminatory to any doctor in the healthcare field. One, because if you become a doctor, it is your duty and obligation to treat individuals throughout any community that need that treatment. You take the Hippocratic Oath, their identity does not matter. It's your duty to provide health care. You still have many doctors who refuse to go about that method. If somebody comes into them and is like, I'm trans and I want to medically transition, there are doctors who will not go that route. There are also doctors that, um, so just for background on this, if someone were to transition female to male, they, after they start testosterone and after a certain time on testosterone, they're more likely to get, like, certain health problems if they have their uterus still. So even if it's just, like... It doesn't even have to be considered a medically transitioning step, but getting a hysterectomy so that there's no health problems after this individual starts testosterone. Doctors have been, like, since this patient is trans, there have been known cases of doctors going like this, no, I will not perform this hysterectomy on you because you're trans. We, and that's we, on the doctors. I, yes. Um, I, I, sorry. I, I think that there needs to be some form of re- repercussion for doctors who are like that. Um, I rather than Rather than saying we can't have anybody like this, I think there needs to be a repercussion for doctors who are not willing to actually treat or even help transgender patients. Simon? Well, I definitely think that there... Maybe this isn't a, a repercussion, but there is an incentive for doctors to treat trans people. Uh, and that incentive is insurance paying for the treatment. It, it's a source of income. Uh, I, in that presentation that I set up, I, I learned that Obamacare covers a lot of trans treatment if it's, if it's, um, if it's, prescribed as a treatment for dysphoria, um, gender dysphoria. And so that the doctor is missing out on a payday if they don't treat the, the patient. Um, but would you go so far as to, to reprimand doctors? Um, considering, in my personal opinion, and I think that lots of other people feel, other people feel this way as well, Um, It's a doctor's job to perform their duty to each and every patient that tries to come to them. And if someone comes into a doctor and is like, I want to transition, um, then I feel that the doctor should be reprimanded for saying, we're not going to let you transition. If If you go to your primary physician and they tell you, we're not doing that because I don't want you to. Because uh, I don't feel comfortable treating someone who's transgender. They signed up to be a doctor. It is their job. Preston, you had something. Um, there have actually been a lot of cases where even nurses refuse to call their patients by their uh, preferred pronouns within a medical 
uh, facility, which has uh, um, obviously has damaging effects mentally on these patients. And I think if you're a nurse within these uh, mental or these health facilities, is your obligation to treat your patient holistically to the best abilities that you can so you're not damaging them. And if you take on that Hippocratic Oath within the health field and you are deciding to push your personal beliefs on other people, damaging them, you should not be in the medical field at all. Sorry. I think I think this, uh, my question has parallels to what we're talking about. It's not, a, it's not the same thing, so I don't want it to sound like an equivocation. But um, are there reprimands... Or, or repercussions, I should say, for doctors who refuse to perform abortions? I think that's a state-by-state state basis. That's the thing right now. That's a question that still has yet to be answered. Yeah. Um, additionally, an abortion is a surgery, which is a little different. Um, and so traditionally, I, the surgeons are the only ones who can perform that. And so I understand not wanting to perform a certain type of surgery um, because surgery has an effect on the person performing it as well. But as a doctor who should just, if we're talking primary physicians and nurses and occasionally ER people, ER individuals, right? If we're talking those sort of people, um, including people who perform hysterectomies um, and the opposite of a hysterectomy for men, whatever that's called. I can't. A vasectomy. A vasectomy? Yeah, you're right. Um, so those specific medical um, community people um, aren't actually acting on the person. So they're not actually helping them transition, specifically with hysterectomies and vasectomies. They're helping them prevent medical complications. And with nurses um, and primary physicians, they're not actually making them transition, if that makes sense. They are instead prescribing testosterone or estrogen or anti-testosterone or whatever that's called. Um, and, and so that's a little different than saying you have to perform this abortion. I don't think that any surgeon should be um, forced to perform um, a, something plagi. The one... Phaleoplasty? Yes. A phaleoplasty. Like, that's definitely something that the surgeon should go in saying that they're willing to do rather than... Okay, okay, so I just need to distinguish between doctor and uh, surgeon. Yeah, Preston. Um, another thing that I like to uh, remember when uh, tackling problems like this is that I believe liberty is of the utmost importance within a society, and doctors have the ability to withhold liberty of individuals in terms of medical decisions, and if a doctor gives the, the doctor has the obligation to perform certain uh medical treatments, specifically when it comes to transitioning and uh, vasectomies, hysterectomies, etc., etc., when an individual knows the risks of those surgeries, but still chooses to go through with it. As long as the, if there's risks involved, and if there's any risk of any um, type of uh, practice, the doctor should tell them, and if the person still looks at it and says, yes, I want to go through with it, there's an obligation on the doctor's part to let 
that individual or to perform that task for that individual. Otherwise, you are taking away their liberty to have that decision. I, I definitely agree with you there, Preston. Um, I do think that the issue is, is that we have doctors who are saying they don't want someone to go with, to go through with gender affirming hormone therapy. And in doing that, they're not even willing to give them the option. And I think that's the big issue is um, there's no sense of options in uh, trans transitioning medically oftentimes. And I think with that being said, um, we still have, have testing and ideal, and like we still need more data when it comes to uh, hormone therapy, et cetera, et cetera, since it's, I would assume it's kind of a relatively new thing in terms of uh, the medical society, or field. It's still something that's undergoing. Uh, hormone therapy began in 1949, so it's almost well, 100 it's years old. <laughs> Like, and I mean, like, it's still being tested, it's still being uh, perfected within the medical community. Everything's always being perfected. But with that being said, I think we should continue letting individuals go through with this process to see whether or not their life experiences or that this life experience betters them and betters their happiness overall for them and the overall community. Uh, yeah, and it, it is really... Um... I don't want to call it a guessing game, but it is kind of a guessing game. Because Life is always a guessing game. <laughs> because, uh, well, specifically with gender-affirming therapy, you have to find the right balance of the hormone. Mm. So you have to find the right amount of testosterone. And uh, uh, transgender females actually have to take an anti-testosterone. Uh, no, transgender males have to take an anti-estrogen. Um, and it's really finding this correct balance that isn't going to throw their body completely off whack. Um, so mm. it is it is experimenting, but it, it's experimenting with the individual. And the individual, sorry, uh, and the individual has to know that that's the process going, taking place. And as long as they know that and they go through with it, it's fine. It's morally acceptable. Mm -hmm. Simon? Two things. One, uh, the when you when you when you talk about was it trans males need to take an anti estrogen thing? Yeah. I just I just think of Bob from Fight Club. Is that is that basically <laughs> it? Um, that's actually a really good example, actually, because uh, with a person's body, that's basically what the guessing is when taking uh, hormones, because if someone takes too much of a hormone it ends up being your body overcompensates and it goes like this oh shit we need to make the other hormone quick so if a trans male for some odd reason like decides to double up on their testosterone dose because they don't feel that the testosterone's doing anything quick enough that actually has a negative effect where it turns that their body goes like this oh shit there's too much of this we need to overcompensate so their body overproduces estrogen making them more feminine mm. so it's one of those things that like you do have to guess and check especially with hormone therapy where it starts out with we're going to give you this much and then next time you come in for your checkup 
we're going to see how it's affecting you and if it's going okay and it's not doing anything super bad we're going to up your dosage um i would um i just was going to say that i would note that it is actually transgender women who have to double up um they have to take an anti-androgen which uh decreases testosterone and then estrogen which induces you know estrogen production um because testosterone is insanely aggressive when you add estrogen um so you add a little bit more estrogen and testosterone in men will just rock it um so they have to take those two things i just wanted to correct myself sorry Mm. that's That's good there's the check mechanism the other half of the presentation was done by a surgeon who specializes in um, uh, operating on the throat in order to uh, transition someone's voice. And uh, he says that the procedure, uh, if, if you're a trans woman, for example, he says the procedure involves scarring the larynx. But once it's scarred to a certain point, you can't undo it. So it's it's very much a fine line. And he played a he played a recording of before and after, and it was it was truly remarkable what he's been able to do for some patients. Um, that is relatively new, and from my reading, actually not that all common. Um, um I think it's. I think that doing that is about as common as phalioplasties. For if you don't know, a phalioplasty is for a female to male transition, and they basically um, take tissues and they create a penis. So those aren't very common at all. Those are very common with like people who have terrible, terrible bottom dysphoria. So. I think it's the same sort of thing because with the estrogen, obviously your uh, uh, male to female doesn't all the way, like, it doesn't change their voice completely, but it does change their voice a lot. So I don't think it's, like, too common to do that as well as phalioplasties. So I believe that those and phalioplasties are still very much in the experimental type stage of uh, the medical transitioning. What are the effects of banning transgender participation in certain aspects of society? Um. Preston, you can... Alrighty. So first off, banning, just outright banning transgender participation in society is immoral on the basis that it takes away the liberty of the individual to have that choice to pick and have and choose these life experiences. We don't, we don't outright know exactly what will be the outcome when it comes to every single individual yet within the society and whether or not it will uh, benefit the overall happiness of, of a society. But it's that individual's choice to be a part of society. And if the society is non-inclusive, uh, John Stuart Mill would agree with what Simon said last time when it comes to religious communities, you can leave it's on the individual to leave that society and to become or be a part of a more inclusive group. Um, so I would assume, correct me if I'm wrong, Simon, uh, but this question is uh, about the idea that we've been banning transgender people from participating in sports. 
Uh, and the military. The military. Um, okay. So, uh, my thoughts really are specific to sports, not military. Um, and so I do see where this can become an issue because we do ban the use of hormones and, uh, boosters. I don't remember the real word. Steroids? Steroids. (laughs) Really going through it today, apparently. Um, we do ban the use of steroids in sports in general. Um, so when it, and this is a, this is going to sound a little sexist and I'm sorry. Um, so when it comes to transgender women, they have a naturally higher, um, testosterone level than cisgender women because they were born male. Um, and so their body is constantly kind of at war with that. Um, and so that can lead to them having an unfair advantage in that aspect because of their higher testosterone levels, which lead to everything else that testosterone leads to. Um, We see this in the difference between males and females already, and that's why we don't play sports together usually, like professional sports. We don't typically have professional sports where males and females are competing against each other or with each other. but on the aspect of transgender males, I do see that as being pointless because most transgender males, one, aren't going to actually want to compete with other males um, and to feel that they are lesser because of it. Um, I, my own roommate is uh, transgender and takes testosterone and they used to be amazing at hockey, like national champion at hockey. And now they won't even think about joining the male hockey team because that is the team that they would have to join. Um, and they won't even think about it because they're like, I'm a twig. Uh, matter of fact, they were going to join the rugby team, showed up to the first rugby practice and was like, I'm a twig and left. Um, so I, I do think that there's kind of a difference there and I see why we're doing it. But if we're going to do if we're going to ban them from competing with women, we need to allow them to compete in a mixed environment. Preston. Um, okay, so I don't think uh, American society has enough experience yet to determine whether or not we should ban transgender individuals from specific sports uh, as per their assigned sex or as per their gender identity, whether or not uh, both sides X and Y. When it comes to that, I say this because it's this is a new issue that's obviously become a thing within a society. It's become a hot topic. And obviously, because it's a hot topic, we don't have a direct answer for it yet. So, as I would follow with John Stuart Mill on this, we need to go through life experiences to determine whether or not this will actually contribute to the general happiness of all individuals. So I say we let transgenders go through um, certain sport processes. We let them go through it and see what happens. That's It's all experimentation. we got to see what happens, see the results, and if it does seem that they get an unfair advantage because of certain hormone therapies, then we don't let them in we don't let them in the sports because it's an unfair advantage and when it comes to sports we need to have fairness when it comes to the participation between genders 
I believe that with um, sports, and especially with letting people within these sports, I know that a lot of sports don't have like certain weight classes, but I have always been a participant in wrestling and boxing. So in wrestling, or more specifically within Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, everybody goes against everybody. And when in competitions, it's more about weight class and skill class. So I think that, like you said, if not like banning them and just letting them participate and letting them uh, figure out where to go, I believe that more into weight class and skill class comes into it. So I think that if this transgender woman fits within this uh, 120 weight class, but does have the strength of a 150 weight class, bumping her up the weight class and bumping her up the skill class, things like that, I believe would be more approachable than outright just banning them. Um. Uh, I really actually like that idea, and I hadn't thought about that before. Um, but additionally, I also think that um, it it might be beneficial to reintegrate the two leagues. So um, we have lots of we have lots of people who identify on the non-binary scale, which is anybody who doesn't identify as male or female, um, and cisgender, transgender, both um, anywhere. that doesn't identify there Um, and I think reintegrating the two by weight class or skill class or by some measure of degree would be beneficial because even I personally um, I identify as non-binary and uh, I used to love doing gymnastics and dancing and cheerleading and I don't feel like I can do that anymore because dancing and gymnastics and cheerleading is a girl thing. Um, And so while I'm fairly happy with the way I look and the way I feel, um, my participation socially is blocked because it's a girl thing. You're only going to get girls in a dancing class. Um, And that's obviously not necessarily completely true, but it's the general rule of thumb. Um, And so I think reintegrating um, people within sports, so making it a girls and boys soccer team based on skill or weight or whatever um, would be beneficial. Uh, banning the transgender society from anything else, like anywhere else in society, is stupid. Banning transgender people from the military is absolutely idiotic, and that's all I have to say on that topic. We can move on. I think, uh, <laughs> I, like I said... Go through with the experiment, see what happens, and if it turns out it doesn't work and it doesn't produce uh, general happiness, then it's actually more problematic than uh, it, than uh, being good. Then yeah, ban them. That's just it, it's experiments. See what happens. Is there a viable process for incorporating transgender acceptance into conservative or reluctant institutions? It's not up to them. That's what I say. It's not up to them whether or not a transgender individual participates in society. 
Sorry, that's just a right, 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 right. But I, I think you're not addressing the question. It, it's not. We're just ta- we're trying to focus this on the institutions, not not the society. But, but it's whether or not they can participate in the institutions. So, what is a good way to to ha- uh, or is there an effective mechanism other than just dialogue of incorporating um, more transgender inclusivity in places like? churches or the military or sports or, or stuff like that go ahead um so on in in my honest opinion i think the way that we're gonna have to go about uh gaining transgender acceptance in general is through um further research so researching um transgender like where transgenderness uh originates and when somebody becomes transgender um and if there's a time when someone becomes transgender uh in addition also educating people about what transgenderism is because um we all know someone who thought that transgenderism was a really expensive kink um And and that's not the case, obviously. Uh, and and so I think uh, educating them and doing research would probably be the way to go about initiating that transgender acceptance into every avenue of society. Um, we may have to change a few things to incorporate transgender people, like me and Eli suggested with the sports thing, the integration into weight and classes and things like that. Um, uh, and, and, and going about it that way. But in general, I think knowledge and education will be the way that we at least begin that process. Simon? Oh, right. I just wanted to, to clarify. It, it sounds like you're not necessarily advocating for the research, but the optimal conclusion of the research and so i think a good parallel to that would be um we need to do an, like similarly to how uh research neurological research uh indicated that bumps on the skull don't actually mean anything um <laughs> we, about white people or black people then uh that same uh research method and, and conclusion needs to be derived uh in a similar fashion for, for the trans community. So it sounds like you're advocating for more of the optimal outcome rather than the research, but I'm not entirely sure. Well, we don't know what the outcome is going to be like. Well, no, and I, I do think just more research needs to be done into, like like I said, why people are transgender. Um, uh, lots of people... Uh, well, transgenderism used to be considered a mental illness, and now we're kind of integrating out of this idea that transgenderism is a mental illness. Um, and so I think there needs to be more research on why people are transgender and what makes people transgender. Um, there is a lot of opinions out there on what does one thing or another, but I think that research needs to be done before we'll ever reach full integration of the transgender society as accepted.
this is all hypothetical, but let's talk about this from both you, both M's and Eli's perspective. I want to hear what they say about this. What if this research comes out, and it turns out that when it comes to uh, transgender communities, that it's problematic for the whole to allow transgenders within society to uh, identify themselves with a different gender. Let's say it uh, harms children. Let's say there's actual evidence that comes out that says it harms children. This is hypothetical. I'm not saying that it's true, but let's say it that's the case. What do you say to that? Are you telling me that there's research that's going to come out that says no, that... No, no, I said hypothetically. <laughs> no, 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 listen. Are you telling me that this hypothetical research comes out and says that this transgender individual, this individual being Not this trans- individual, I'm saying like as a whole. This transgen- group of transgender people and somehow them being transgender harms children. Yes, there's some link between the two of those. I don't Let's see the link. Happen. <laughs> You don't Ever. see the link? <laughs> so I, I don't I don't even see a hypothetical link. That's the thing, Preston. What would like I, I, I know think it's a hypo- has something to say. I think it's a hypothetical I know it's a hypothetical, but come up with a link that's like at least linkable. Simon. I have a possible link. Okay. Okay. Let, let, okay, so there's a current lawsuit going on between a dad and a mom. <laughs> And the reason for this lawsuit is the dad wants to strip the mom custody of their child. The child was born a boy, um, and the mother has allegedly been telling the child that he is not a boy, that he is a girl, and that he needs to do things like a girl. And dad does not like it because now the boy is convinced that he is a girl. Um, and he's like five, uh, and I guess this is an agency question, uh, of when they, uh, when, when can people start to transition, but for, but, but this idea of, 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 but this idea that, um, people don't have the agency to choose, um, their gender identity, and you could argue that, uh, people who want to transition don't typically because they're born in, with a different psyche um good link good link then that, that that would be let's i i'm not i'm not trying to uh, um support presence hypothetical but i am saying that there is this idea that children are being affected by the trans community in such a fashion um so with that it honestly if it's actually a situation that it is kind of like i don't want to i don't know what actually it would be called but like a munchausen by proxy where it is like you have to be a girl then that's not right but if a child actually is very much like i don't feel right this doesn't feel right to me then it is actually the child's choice because I know for a fact, I know a few people from the time that they were small, small children that they have never felt right. We know of one of these people. We know Shane. Shane, from the time he was this big, has never felt comfortable in his body. He has always 
He's always wanted to dress male, wanted to be masculine, everything like that. So if it's a case like Shane, where from the time they were small, they do feel like they are a different gender, then it's better for that child. Because if we go to a different case, we could go to look at Avery, for example. Avery was raised female and was treated like a female from the time up until sophomore year in high school. After they started transitioning socially and medically, he automatically became a much happier person. Honestly, his depression like alleviated him. It's one of those things that <laughs> it's de honestly depends on the person. So I don't know where I'm going from this. Uh, Preston, since you're being violent about it. <laughs> okay. Let's say that for some research comes out and it says that even when we let transgender individuals get be assigned to their gender identity and they go through all the processes to allow themselves to uh, fully encapsulate that identity, that the suicide rates don't change. Yes. Can, can, in your hypothetical, can we definitely say that these suicide rates are because they're transgender? Well, can, that's can, the thing. When it comes to that, we have to look at it. When it comes to this, as we've already seen with research, that, that the transgender community does have higher suicide, like a higher suicide rate comparatively to the normal population. Sounds like a social thing, though, not like a biological thing. I, I was going to say... Are we still incorporating no, the let's... fact that transgender hate crimes occur annually? Are we incorporating the fact that there are hundreds of transgender women that get murdered annually? Are we taking into the fact that transgender hate happens? Are, are like These are actual social issues that we need to resolve before we can say that the transgender community has higher suicide rates because they're transgender? Yes. They're let's, transgender let's and... Let's say that is the case, then. Let's say that they have higher suicide rates because they are transgender, and that's what this research determined. I would still say, have we looked at the social aspect? Yes, because... we have. Let's say this hypothetical research okay. looks at the uh, social... Preston, Preston, I think, I think it'd be easier... This hypothetical would be easier to answer if, if it wasn't suicide rates, but just life expectancy in general was significantly lower. Yeah, um, let's go with that. Okay, so transgender life expectancy is significantly lower. That's your... Yeah, and, and, I, and I suppose you could say it's in all things considered with social stuff and, and whatnot. Uh, similarly to how, to how uh, the life expectancy of uh, African-American slaves 200 years ago was significantly lower than that of white people, but that's progressed. Right. Uh, um, I, I think that'd be a similar example. Under that hypothetical... I would say that that needs to be one of the aspects that's put forward before this person begins their transition at all. Social, medical, surgical, any transitioning. Before that happens, they need to be told your life expectancy is, we, we have determined that your life expectancy is significantly lower than the rest of the population. And if they choose to go forward with it, that's mm. their agency. Okay, it sounds like it plays right into John Stuart Mill. It does. 
his, uh, to give the example that uh, kind of fits this, uh, he uses the bridge example, where let's say you are an individual sitting on a bench right across from a, very, a bridge that you know is unstable. You see someone that's unknowing that this bridge is unstable and it's about to walk across it. What can you do? Can you warn them or do you stop them from crossing that bridge? You warn them. And I think, that's, them. I think that's the way that you should go about doing this. Mm. But I don't think that it's, it's a point to say no one can be transgender. I think if we were mm. to do that, um, in your hypothetical, if we are to say no one is allowed to transition ever because transgenderism has been linked to lower life expectancy Blah. and laws are put in place to stop transitioning and things like that, you're going to get A, underground transitioning, which is a lot less safe as we saw with underground abortions 200 years ago. And B, you're going to see higher suicide rates in people who are trans but can't come out as trans. And I think that uh, also plays into the fact that you're taking away their liberty. And that as we've all, like, we all mutually assume and agree that liberty is one of the utmost importance within our society. Yes? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed? Okay. So if we take away that liberty, you're essentially taking down their uh, foundational um, source of happiness, the choice to have that, and you're creating an authoritarian uh, law. Yeah. All right. You had something, Eli? Um, it was just going into the underground transitioning when, like, around the time of Stone, like Stonewall, there was a lot of underground transitioning going on because a lot of, like, practices wouldn't allow medical transitioning, so it was just getting a lot of, like, just unsafe ways to get testosterone or estrogen so it just turned into a lot of unsafe underground transitioning that was just bad for everyone involved when there are safer ways and ways that don't harm anybody except for the person that's willing to go through the harm of transitioning, if there is harm. Is there room in society for people that are not tolerant of transgenderism? I think that people who are intolerant of transgenderism, there is room for them. There's always room for anyone intolerant. Because if you have an individual that is ignorant and intolerant in a society, all what you do is you reaffirm the truth of your position by having someone that is intolerant it's like that good and that's it's like within religion having the necessary good versus evil narrative you need to have uh the two fleshing out one another and also when it comes to intolerant individuals and intolerant positions john stewart mill would say that having those individuals as a within society and allowing their opinions to take place allows you to one reaffirm your truth and two there might be elements of truth within their arguments that you can take in and strengthen your own argument with. I think um, I agree with Preston, but for a different reason. I think that basic economics will play themselves out. So if a company, for some reason, chooses to not hire, I don't know, redheads, uh, then they're losing out on all that talent. That they, and, they, and they're losing out on the, the capital that they could gain 
Um, and I think the same will be true uh, for people who have transitioned if a company just decides not to hire them, you know, with uh, certain exceptions, that they're going to lose out on uh, market resources. Uh, I just I just wanted to add that um, while we while having a, a a controversy the other side is helpful I think um, that it would only act as a a furthering or a proponent of educating and making known the truth of transgenderism whatever that may be as research comes out but I think that is truly what what that other side would do if we do have people not tolerant of transgenderism. I would like to say though that I don't have, I don't think society has any place for people who are violently not tolerant of transgenderism. What? Sorry, I have to ask. What do you mean by violently intolerant? You have to define that. Um, I don't think that it's right that people think that because a woman is trans or a man is trans that they can kill them. Um, or that anti-transgender hate crimes uh, go unsolved mo- mo- the majority of the time. Um, I don't think that those things are right, and I don't think that people who commit those crimes have a place in society at all. Right. I, 100- I 100% agree. As long if they act out and harm another individual, then that's, that's them inter erupting the liberty of another person and inherently killing them and within that being said they are they have no place within a society or with within society and the government and or society can put sh- sh- sanctions on those individuals and take them out or not take them out but you know I'm in prison um, to add on to what I was about to say um, the reason why I think that uh, another reason why I think that these intolerant individuals who can express their opinions within soci- within the society and can voice their opinions as loud as they want to, as long as they're not hurting another person, um, I believe there's room in our society because if you take away their right to say what they want, mm-hmm. um, you are taking away their liberty and their freedom of speech. And we can't just be... Uh, um, yeah, well, you guys get to do what you want, but or say what you want, but you guys can't. That's inherently just discriminatory against the other side. Right, and it's not just freedom of speech for the sake of freedom of speech. It's it's freedom of speech for the sake of freedom of thought, freedom of expression, yeah. um, freedom of being. I have to agree. Just because um, there will always be people that always have their opinions. There's always there's still terribly racist people but the majority of people aren't going around lynching black people just because there are racist people so it's just one of those things that while people can have their own opinions and everything as long as they just stay that as long as they just stay opinions as long as they don't become violent with them as long as they don't start harming another person because of their opinions everybody's allowed to have their own opinions as long as they don't drive a car through a crowd um so i i think that we could actually 
kind of bring this back to what we discussed last week with religions having their own thought until they're discriminatory. I, I think that there's room in society for people who have these own thoughts, who are racist, sexist, anti-LGBTQ+, um, as long as they don't lead to discriminatory acts. And I know that you mentioned in Simon that if this person is like, I'm not going to hire these transgender people, that they lose out on that. But I think that that's also wrong. That's still discrimination in the workforce. Um, and so I think people being able to verbalize these thoughts and be like, I don't agree with the way that this is, is okay, but I don't think that it should ever lead to discrimination. And that's where I think their position is. Their position of thought, but I don't think it should lead to a position of action. Alrighty, well, this reminds me. What are, what are your guys' opinions on the good old cake debate from the SCOTUS? The what? You know, do you not remember what I'm talking about? <laughs> the guy who wouldn't bake a cake for a gay couple. You want to on that case specifically, or 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 just in conceptually? Conceptual, or let's do the implications and conceptual um, okay. ideas. Okay, I think it, I think this just has to be said, but the couple went out looking for a lawsuit. That um, is very true. So there, there's a lot of great legislation passed that was tested, so to speak. Um, a lot, like uh, Rosa Parks didn't just one day decide not to stand up, uh, give up her butt to see. It was planned. Um, and so I think there's some good that comes out of that. Uh, but um, in terms of a, an entirely private entity, um, well, that's, that's, that's where it gets a little muddled because where do the where does this private entity get its uh, resources? The public. Exactly. Mm. And that's where the federal government or state government, yeah, the federal government gets its uh, good old uh, right to legislate from yeah. the <laughs> interstate commerce clause. <laughs> um. So controversial opinion here all things considered I am a member who benefits from that uh, Supreme Court case um, but uh, I do think that the way that that Supreme that case was brought about was wrong because businesses private businesses are given the right to refuse service to any individual um, Granted, that specific case was based on a personal bias and a personal discrimination. Um, I do think that the way that case was brought about, and because of the petty nature that it was brought about, um, it wasn't exactly ethical. Um, there's another implication when it comes to this court case that I learned while in one of my classes from the faith and democracy class with Professor Flores and Bruce Williams. Um, I learned that when it came to this case that the individual or the owner of the shop, the cake shop, offered to uh, make a cake 
for n- not for their wedding. They said, I'll make you a cake, but it's not going to be for your wedding. Because it went against his religious principles of gay marriage. And he said that I will not make you a cake for your marriage because I it goes against my religious principles and I'd be uh, inherently, in his ideas, he's, he'd be uh, inherently uh, going against God if he made a cake for their marriage. The way I see it is um, it was petty how that was brought about because if he was like i'll just make you a cake it can't be for your marriage um wedding cakes are really expensive so if you say i just need a one tier white cake no it's not for anything specific that's ultimately cheaper i don't know i'm just thinking like a cheapskate and i'm just thinking that i don't Mm -hmm. think it inherently matters what the cake is used for you get a cake you use it for what you want to use it for. Simon? I kind of want to disagree with this point that it was brought about in a petty fashion. I kind of disregard how it was brought about just because of the, uh, the, the, the ideal behind it. It wasn't, it wasn't particularly for no reason. They were looking for a lawsuit to change the status quo. And, and that's happened all throughout history, and, and many, many people benefit from uh, from staged harms. You have like, Rosa Parks, you have walk-ins all across the South back in the 1960s that right. fought against segregation. So it's, it's, it's the same processes, the same uh, methods that were taking place back in the past that brought change and brought about the civil rights or the civil or the voting rights act of the 1965 etc etc right uh, and i do see that but and i totally agree obviously with what was brought about because of this case but the idea the idea behind the case the argument that he wouldn't make a cake based on his um, religion for them and they felt the need to go to court because of it I that's I, I think that's where a lot of the political unease arises in this case because it was a case where the business refused to make them a cake for their wedding he would still make them a cake but he wouldn't make it for their wedding and I, I think that's where a lot of the political unease surrounding the case Yes, a lot of the political unease is arisen by people who are particularly homophobic. Um, but I think that's where a lot of that unease arises because of the nature of the case. Mm. Simon? Uh, I just wanted to, to do a bit of clarification really quick. I believe the case we're talking about is Masterpiece Cake Shop, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Yes. Uh, which was decided June 4th, 2018. Uh, not long ago, and I want to make sure that this we're, we all agree because because we're talking about the benefits of that holding, but I want to make sure that we all understand what the holding was. The holding was that the Civil Rights Commission actually violated that the Baker's First Amendment by by failing to act in a manner neutral to religion, uh, and that's because it was a state entity, I suppose, um, mm. A state entity trying to infringe upon his, his First Amendment. So I, I, I think that they were definitely the wrong party to bring that suit, and thinking about it now, because the government obviously can't discriminate against religion, but, but 
I, I don't think the silver... I think uh, perhaps the gay couple would have had a better chance if they were able to bring the suit under their own uh, power, but that's being... That's, I don't think that's doing due, due diligence to the to the facts of the case that happened, so... Because I think it was the state that ordered him to make a cake, and I think he... Um, I believe he was the plaintiff of the case, was he not? Who was the defendant? Yeah, he was the plaintiff, and he brought it to court. He appealed it all the way to the SCOTUS because it was the state that forced him to make that cake, and he's like, nah. <laughs> so that goes back to our last question. Should the state, in your guys' opinion, be allowed to to force somebody to make to interact with someone who's trans? Um, so, in my opinion, when we, when it comes to this idea of uh, business versus the individual, uh, there is a difference. I don't think that the the state or the government should be able to enforce or even force someone to do business with somebody else because there are other methods other places where they could get their business. It goes back to this like, economic principle you're talking about, Simon, when they're hiring someone. Yeah. Um, and while I do believe it's wrong to not hire someone because they are trans, I don't think that telling someone they have to uh, do business with this person because they are trans uh, is right. Because that transgender person or couple or individual could definitely go to a different business and find business there. And I, I think that's where uh, this particular case we're talking about and uh, on an individual level kind of differs. Mm, I think that's a very good distinction. I do want to also make a comparison to exactly what you're saying though, um, but rather on an issue of gender it's an issue of race uh think the supreme court heart of atlanta motel the united states where the court ruled that the heart of atlanta motel cannot discriminate against black people they can't choose not to serve black people because that disrupts interstate commerce um i think that the constitution's actually laid out for businesses to have to to sell and interact with people so uh, uh, on an interstate level, um, but on a state level, I suppose that what you just said, M, is going to be the norm until legislation is passed, and I do believe legislation will be passed, similar to the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the Civil Rights Act of 1965, I want to say. Um that changes the tide of public discourse. I think the biggest thing when it comes to distinguishing between private and public and state and interstate commerce is the problem of how broad interstate commerce has been taken <laughs> to mean in the whole of federal government's uh, power and wh where their power resides. We have, uh, we already know about the case with U.S. v. Lopez where the United States justified uh, uh, a law that prevented carrying a handgun in, in state-sponsored schools, public schools, because apparently education um, 
affects interstate commerce. But U.S. v. Lopez took away that power. But that's just another example where the federal government broadened their power when it came to the Interstate Commerce Clause. And it has been broadened so much that they choose to regulate small, individual, private businesses based on the fact that where their materials come from, come from out of state. They come from, they are coming from interstate commerce, and which gives the federal government the right to regulate these private businesses. All right. A quick note, U.S. v. Lopez was actually the first case in which legislation that Congress passed was uh, increasing Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce was the first uh, legislation struck down since 1935. Holy crap. Yeah, and that and U.S. v. Lopez was in 97, I think. Uh, yeah. So you're definitely right on that, Preston. And with the invention of the internet, it's the whole internet can be technically regulated under interstate commerce because of how it affects every single uh, aspect of our lives within every single state of the United States. And I think that question is going to boil down to further um, iterations of the Constitution. We have Democratic Ben Habib. Um, if anyone knows that writer, she wrote about this idea of democratic iterations and jurisprudential or jurisgenerative politics, where we, as time progress, um, progresses, we interpret the Constitution slightly, and every time a difficult question is uh, taken into account within politics and even the judicial process, that the Constitution changes even slightly, even when a um, ruling is struck down or a ruling is uh, supports the status quo there's still a change in how the constitution is uh, interpreted and with that being said um, the, within time and later democratic iterations I believe the power that's taken place within the uh, interstate commerce clause will eventually change and the constitution will eventually change within 50 years and I believe that when it comes to transgender rights and trans and the transgender community, the constitu- this the constitution will change to include them. Or disclude them, depending on what happens. What does the long term future look like for transgender people? <laughs> what a great transition. <laughs> yeah. So basically just to wrap everything up, summarize everything basically that we've been talking about. Um, I'd say that right now the future looks kind of grim. We kind of have uh, bigger bigger issues, some would say, on our plate, and this has caused um, the transgender community to take a back seat, I think. Uh, as far as legislation goes, and um, uh, because of this and I think particularly because of um, our current government sitting in 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 government people um, it's it looks dire in my opinion I would be careful with uh, using the death or using the wording that that the transgender community is taking the backseat because 
obviously when it comes to uh, Donald Trump and this entire presidency and this whole shit show with the Trump administration taking place right now, um, there's going to be a significant change when it comes to this next election. Either, either the American people are going to reaffirm Donald Trump or the American people will um, back go back to the Democratic uh, Party and elect whoever's part of that nomination process. And I don't know whether or not the Democratic Party will focus on transgender individuals, because right now that's unclear. I do agree that is unclear with uh, how focused they are on impeaching Donald Trump and I haven't and the environment environment at this point in time. But I would say that the future looks better and brighter than it did 50 years ago. On government, I kind of want to push back that there's not a lot of open government at this point, too, just because the House has a majority for yeah. one. Uh, and that's a pow- that's, that is one that, that I, I would argue that is the most powerful branch of government. It comes first in the Constitution for a reason. Um, and secondly, to, to respond to Preston's question on whether or not the, the Democratic Party will acknowledge the trans issue, certain members have. Elizabeth Warren is definitely a huge advocate uh, and she is definitely being uh, pro-generative in her in her inclusivity uh, the whole Latin X movement mm-hmm. uh, behind and the uh, there's there she did an interview with somebody it was, it was the group is called black WM X like XN uh, I'm not sure how you say that. Uh, so there's definitely uh, the Democratic Party is definitely focusing on this issue to some extent, but it might just be all vote pandering, uh, to be honest. Uh, but I, I want to be careful in making a prognostication, and I think we all have been, uh, because in Preston, I'm going to need you to refresh my memory, but there's this idea of looking at history as in things were always supposed to go that way. We kept saying it was tautological, but it's not. It's um, I, I can't I can't remember. There's a specific name that we've talked about this several times, where you say, "Oh, slavery was always going to end," or "Women were always going to get." We can't just make that argument. And I think this goes back to what we were saying earlier about um, inclusivity, where more research will come out and more findings, uh, and perhaps even more legislation will be tested. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that will dictate how society is in a, in a, in a very scientific fashion. So, uh, the, the future is happening. There's activism. Um, I believe, when it, like, I agree with you, and when it comes to this future, you have this activism, and what activism does usually does come uh, progress towards a specific community. And that's why I am going to predict that the future for transgender individuals will will eventually be bright. I'm not going to say it's going to be immediately bright, but I'm going to stay as a historian, and I'll agree with Simon that it's history is not tautological, and it won't always happen. There are always nuanced changes, and there's always a possibility that we could backslide. All right, and, and, and to, to bring this to a more micro level, when I, I, when I was thinking of this question, I, I was thinking, you know, I don't know anyone in their 80s who's transitioned. But is that something that we can expect to start seeing? Mm. 
I honestly think that it is something that we're going to start seeing. Just like the fact... Just like the fact that um, we're... You don't see a whole lot of old, old gay couples. But, like, you see more and more that these two ladies in their 70s just got married. And they were like, we've been together since we were teenagers that type of thing so I think it's more of we're gonna see more people transitioning and we're gonna see an older generation that is like transitioning and becoming more comfortable in their skin just because it is a more comfortable society now I don't know I don't like thinking about the future the future makes me anxious to all hell but, like, there's this song by uh, Kimya Dawson. It's called Utopian Futures. And it's honestly the, the most perfect world that we can think about. And there's this line in it that I always think about when talking about, like, transgender issues. It's, um, here where the children grow with names they chose and genders all, the, all their own. Here where we celebrate each other. So I believe that if we were to go and have this future in the best possible mindset in my like the way i see it is it would be like that the future would be like that kimya dawson phrase where everybody's just comfortable with who they are and everybody's just proud of each other i know it's probably not going to happen in our lifetime but I can hope that can happen. Well, we're a very fast generation. Indeed. <laughs> Any final, final words? Um, I think that right now the future looks grim. But I can at least hope to be an optimist and hope that the future will look brighter in a few years. Aw. Hope to hope. Hope to hope. Hope to hope. Well, this has been our conversation, and this has been Social Discourse. I'm Eli. I'm Em. I'm Preston. And I'm Simon. We'll see you next week.